Hello, and welcome in to the show that's got a story for you. This is Aliens After Dark, and I'm your host, Icarus Kane. Very special episode for you today, and I'm running solo. So, I decided to do a fun one that I thought was going to be really cool. Um, so, let's just uh, let's just get right into it, you know? No games today, no, no uh, dicking around, no jokes. Let's just dive right in to today's awesome topic, dragons, giants, and griffins. So, imagine if you were in ancient China, uh, imagine ancient Greece, Egypt, uh, medieval Europe, or even like pre-modern Americas, like Aztecs, Mayans, Native Americans, you know, just kind of put yourself before modern civilization, right? Go back in your mind. Let's all uh, let's all do Greece, right? Because that's going to be a main part of this uh, this episode. So, so Greece. So you're in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, and you know the Mediterranean. You have that whole vibe going. You have the whole like landscape set. What do you see? How? Without modern science, how do you make sense of the world around you, really, without science as we understand it today, without all the advancements that we've had since then? You know, all the understanding and knowledge that comes with, you know, being born in in the 21st century as opposed to being born, you know, (laughs) in ancient times, you know, in B.C. or B.C.E., whatever, you know. A lot of a lot of advancements have been made, <laughs> not only just in the last hundred years, but I mean a lot has happened in the last three or four thousand years, you know, or two or three, you know, depending. If you're going back to Egypt, you know, four to seven thousand years ago, maybe nine to ten thousand years ago, a lot's happened since then. A lot's been discovered. A lot's been understood. How would you How would you make sense of things? You know, a lot of it. It seems like at least, you know, if you look through all the different cultures and societies, a lot of it really helps, uh, um, has a religion to help. Uh, that kind of helps guide how they make sense of things, you know. Things that they can't make sense of tend to be gods or, you know, like I'm thinking um, Native Americans or like Aztecs and stuff like how the earth, you know, your creation myths, you know, how the earth was created, you know, why we're here, how we're here, those types of things. So those types of things that you're trying to make sense of, you know, generally religion is used and not so much science, but also kind of science is the religion and religion is the science. They go kind of hand in hand back then. So it's a lot different of a, of a, um, what's the word? Um, well, just society, just, you know, form of scientific discovery and, and, you know, analysis is a lot different because you're looking at it through a a religious lens, whatever, whatever religion is, whether you, you know, you believe in, in, you know, the Norse gods, you know, and these, these giant gods that made it and and created, you know, these crazy beast offspring, you know, and, and what was the, uh, I can't remember. uh, I think, it was, I think it was either Odin or Loki. Uh, one of their offspring was like the eight legged horse. Um, so, I mean, stuff like that. Like, it kind of makes sense, and you, and you are looking through the world with that lens. But, I mean, it's not breaking news that, like, 
most of these places, you know, you look around in those times, they have a society, they have a structure, they have an infrastructure, they have buildings, you know, they were successful in creating, you know, things that would sustain and, and assist their population in, in thriving and growing, you know. You think about the Greeks and even Egyptians and Romans and stuff. They had temples. They had uh, churches, libraries, uh, roads, schools, government-established buildings, you know, uh, tombs. I mean, they're, as long ago as it was, society wouldn't have looked that much different. It just would have been different mentally, you know. Like, I mean, they, they have plumbing. We've found plumbing, in, you know, with the Aztecs and... and Incas and uh, plumbing in, in um, you know, the Greek, uh, I'm sorry, plumbing in, in like Rome and, and ancient Rome and ancient Greek and ancient uh, Egypt, you know, they have forms of irrigating crops and irrigation canals. So, I mean, they have, a res- you know, a, a, semblance, a resemblance of what our society is today. But what's really significant about this? Digging. <laughs> seems like every culture every society that needs to support a you know a population even if it's just a small like village of 20 people if they have an understanding of agriculture they're going to start start digging and when you get into a bigger society they have to dig deeper and dig more and they build bigger tombs for you know more important kings you know and so what happens? Imagine if you were, so imagine for a second, if you were a part of one of the groups working that was tasked to build the pyramids or, you know, in, in Egypt or in, in uh, Central America or, you know, wherever, China, wherever, well, you know, what's the first thing that's done, but, you know, after planning and stuff, of course, you, you dig, you know, you, you lay the foundation, you dig down, especially like, a lot of these, they have underground chambers and tombs and stuff, and there's all the theories of were they just, you know, big machines? You know, why did we find, like, liquid mercury underneath in chambers, like man, uh, man-created chambers under some of these pyramids? And, like, what was that being used for? Like, so we know that they dug, and in any of these places that, you know, that like, what happens if you, like, what do you do, basically? Put yourself in that spot, you know? Whether it's slave work or not, you're just a, a person with relatively common, you know, understanding of things at that point in time. What do you do if you find a fucking giant tooth, <laughs> you know? Or, or like, a, a, big, <laughs> a big femur bone that's just, like, n- like massive, or a fucking skull. Like, what if somebody finds a skull? What do you fucking do with that shit? Like, how do you how do you make sense of it? I mean, I'm sure people back then, like, skulls aren't a... Um, it's not a foreign object. Like, they know it's a skull, you know? The butcher had been around butchering plenty of animals, and, and life is, seems kind of graphic, more graphic back then, and more, a little like, violent, I guess. But they're just, they have a better understanding of, of those types of things. Or not, maybe not better, but it's definitely easily, like, identifiable that it's a skull, right? Teeth and eye sockets and those types of things, and, you know, um, nostrils and stuff. So 
but it's they're fucking massive you know maybe they don't know that that's a femur bone but they know it's a huge fucking bone whether it's an arm or a leg like that doesn't really fucking matter (laughs) It's, it's huge you know so without a modern understanding of dinosaurs you know how would you make sense of those types of things like a mammoth skull having never even seen an elephant before like according to one of these books that we'll get into in a minute that I read for this um the author states at one point like the Greeks had never even seen elephants they had never been to to Africa you know you're not traveling around the world you're not there's no internet or television that you can watch BBC and see a fucking kangaroo in Australia and never have to go there <laughs> like I mean, and, and, and even more than that, even further than that, you can't go to a zoo back then and, and really see some of these wild creatures from across the planet. You're not, not going to see a polar bear. You're not going to see a kangaroo. You're not going to see all these different types of things. I think there are some recorded instances in Egypt where uh, Cleopatra would bring up, um, you know, these wild, magical creatures and beasts and fr- from... Uh, what uh let's see from i think east africa like just well really south because egypt was you know northern africa and a lot of desert area they didn't have some of the same animals um so i think it was like a really big deal that she brought giraffes to what's the main city in egypt one of the main ones like the capitals gosh this is terrible alexandria or uh thebes um memphis there we go so you know she brought them she brought some of these animals, some of these exotic animals, you know, but that's just from South, the, the South, you know, that's an area they were able to travel South and, and trade and do those things and, uh, you know, conquer those areas or whatever, or trade with those peoples, you know, and they were able to bring some exotic animals. So there are some instances and you would definitely hear stories about it. Even if you go like really far back, like to the people of the younger, uh, Dryas, you know, when you come out of the last ice age, we still have mammoths walking around the planet like even i I read this the other day i'll have to look into it how true it is but sounds like it's just a crazy fact that is true but um apparently mammoths walked around the earth the same time the pyramids were built so i mean like if they were in that area they could have been you could have looked out and seen the pyramids and also like a herd of mammoths you know walking by in the in the distance you know or something but uh I have to look into that to see how accurate that is. But in the Younger Dryas, there were people, and there were still some of these some of these uh, extinct megafauna. So you think of like woolly mammoths, woolly rhinos, cave bears, the giant cave bears, uh, giant sloths, um, the American lion, the giant horse, the giant deer, the giant you know all these animals that are like you know megafauna, and uh, a lot of people don't know that there was like multiple types of all these animals like uh, maybe not all of them but i mean like there was like four different types of mammoths and like uh i think back then there was even like seven different types of elephants that's don't quote me on that but there was more types of like animals in each species you know a couple we had an american lion you know we had the saber tooth like a couple different types of saber tooths uh, we have you know these horses in uh America, I think I read one one place like horses originated in America uh, and then were taken around the world or something and then brought back to America in 
you know, when Europeans came back over. So like they had gone extinct here, but then came back or brought back, you know, or whatever. So what would you do, you know, if like you come across like, okay, so, so there were people around in the times of these, you know, extinct megafauna. What happens when they go extinct and like all you have is the stories and the memories of them. And then all you have, especially in a lot of these cultures that are, that are oral histories, they just have to pass them down through, you know, word of mouth, pretty much it's these oral histories. And so like, you know, back in my day, there were used to be these giant hairy elephants, you know, or back in my day, there were these giant lions that had huge elephant tusks or, you know, whatever you want to, however you would describe a, a saber tooth tiger, like, you know, back in my day, there were, there were bears four times that size, like, you know, and then it's just kind of like you throughout time, you start to think like, Oh, was my grandpa just kind of exaggerating or was it real? And you, these stories and memories turn into myths and legends. And over time they get a little bit more for folklore and without the, you know, without modern science to be able to kind of explain and answer some of those questions, it gets lost into history. And you don't really, especially back then, like, how do you know that there was ever a cave bear if you've never seen a cave bear? Like, you just don't. You're not, even if you come across bones, you don't maybe always think it's a cave bear. I saw, I mean, even like a cat or a dog or like a fox or something, something like pretty normal that we are used to, their skulls look crazy. They look like insanely like violent creatures if you you know just looking at their skulls like their teeth look crazy their eyes look cr like their sockets look great like their everything looks crazy because it doesn't have all the cartilage that makes up you know the face and helps and all the muscles and stuff that helps shape the face so it just looks way different and you don't you could think a squirrel is a fucking rabbit you know and you would have no idea you know so if you come across you know a giant fucking femur or a giant skull of something and you've got these myths that have been mixed through time with like folk tales and wives tales and you know fishermen's tales and then also mixed with like religion and mythology and you know that stuff gets mixed in and it's all being viewed through that eye for through those lenses or through those eyes you know what how do you make sense of it or like say you come across like you know, you're in the Sahara Desert or the fucking Gobi Desert or something, and you come across, like, a clutch of eggs, of dinosaur eggs, that you you don't have any history of dinosaur, you know, of, of what dinosaurs are, or understanding what those things, you know, actually are. So, like, what do you do? Is it, is there a giant bird in the area that you got to, you know, ostriches maybe? If you're in Africa, maybe you're familiar with ostriches, so maybe you think it's something along those lines. Their eggs are pretty fucking huge. How how do you just it's it's just simple. Like how do you fucking make sense of that? That just kind of blows me away. It's like how we're like you're digging, you know, to to even just for farming. Like you're digging up a field to farm it. Like how do you what do you do when you find a fucking couple bones or whatever or a skull and then. I mean, even nowadays, like we, when we when we excavate dinosaur bones and fossils and stuff, we don't find all the pieces. We find some of them, sometimes most of them. It's rare to find an entire skeleton in one site, you know, in one in one dig. What what happens then? What happens if all you found was a femur? 
and you could probably you can probably all see kind of where we're coming from with this and where we're going to go but what do you do you know how do you you don't even have every piece of the puzzle you don't even know that you don't have every piece of the puzzle maybe you find a bunch of bones and it's just not all of them you know and you don't know that you think the the picture that you've created you know you've kind of put the puzzle together or i guess maybe not puzzle pieces but maybe more like lego pieces because they can kind of fit together however you think that it looks like they fit together if that makes sense so if you have like a bunch of bones and you can like make a figure that looks like something that you're familiar with even if you don't have all the pieces it may just be like oh okay well that's what that is you know and to you you know at that time like and you wouldn't even know that there were like you know 10 more bones to this creature about a foot deep a foot deeper than where you went you know what i mean like it's just it's you don't even know <laughs> so you don't always like get the re- the whole picture and you have to i guess just through history and through time you end up it ends up perpetuating some of these myths and some of these stories that really just kind of permeate it in a society and grow and evolve you know through time and through history again with with the assistance of like you know things like myth and religion and philosophy even like just different types of things that kind of evolve over time because of our advances in scientific discovery and understanding or even then like what if you found two different sets of bones and you put them together as one creature like you can you know what if that's happening and so you have parts of like a t-rex and then you also have like parts of like a a a, uh, brachiosaurus and you don't really know that those are two different animals so then you put something together that looks like maybe one huge animal but you're like man this thing's scary you know whatever you've created because you don't know you know and even how would you tell the difference so that's kind of our topic for today that's kind of our story uh we're gonna get into a lot of like deep researched shit now and just kind of like go into some things but i'll tell you a couple stories this is a good episode for you guys man i really hope you enjoy it because i love this type of ancient stuff and dinosaurs and fossils and and you know just how they've their stories and their their the ideas and images of them have like evolved over the years and and that type of stuff is just fascinating and then it's also like we're gonna get into some good stuff like i hope you guys are excited because this is a fun episode so let's talk about the cyclops or the giant we'll probably do a whole episode on a giant or a cyclops in the future but basically just go home and google a mammoth skull and you know look through some they can pretty quickly look like a giant skull and if you've never seen an elephant before you're not going to have any reference of what those tusks are for or or you know you're not going to have any real like comparison to help you you know understand what that what that skull is of and mammoths roamed mammoths woolly mammoths or uh, uh yeah woolly mammoths and uh woolly rhinos like they were all over uh asia europe africa like they're all over the place so if you come across a skull in a cave or something 
and it's just got like looks like one big giant eye socket you know what are you what are you gonna do what are you gonna (laughs) how are you gonna make sense of that and you look to certain things like or for example you see a bunch of bones sticking out of a cliff or you know the side of a you know in in the sand in greece or rome or something and a lot of those times you know they people would see those and they would be like oh that's the bones of achilles or that's the bones of you know insert god here you know or mythical creature or mythical beast or whatever and so like they can get kind of just assumed like oh the things that i believe in are true and there's the physical evidence over there i don't have the fucking machinery equipment or understanding to dig those out you know it's the side of a cliff like you know it's the side of a fucking it's in the ground you know whatever and so it's like i'm not gonna go dig it up but that's the fucking bones of achilles or you know the knee of achilles you know whatever and so these that's how these things kind of get explained so basically the the uh i guess not so much assumption but kind of like a theory i guess that's the best way to put it a theory on uh, where cyclopses came from is that somebody found an old mammoth skull and it looks like it has one big eye socket in the center and there you go and it's huge so you know you get giant <laughs> and well, we already have like tons of like myths and lore about giants like i mean you look at like I mentioned earlier, you look at Norse mythology, uh, Greek mythology, even in the Bible, there's mentions of giants. You have the Nephilim and you have, um, what's his name, uh, Goliath and, and his um, tribe of giants, you know. And so you have these different like texts and different times where they're mentioned in history that kind of corroborates everything. And kind of like if you step back and you look at it and it's like, oh, well, they're saying it over here and they're saying it over here and they're saying it over there. And other things like the flood have been proven to be at least most likely like that all of these different places have a flood myth and no that doesn't mean that the entire earth flooded at once but could all of these places have flooded and they not know about the other places and think that they were the only ones left and then write that into their history because they were the ones that survived and nobody else did (laughs) and you see where we're going like it's 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 easy to make that mistake. And so you really have to step back and think like, we think we are so advanced right now, but what are we not seeing and not looking at? That's like right in front of us pretty much. But you know, that understanding won't come for a hundred years or 500 or thousand years, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to think, you know, whatever, whatever you want to say, say. Uh, So that's, that's kind of how Cyclops is they think that's kind of how cyclops has come into myth and lore and how giants have kind of been or uh stories have been made about you know giants and stuff so that's that's kind of where they think this comes from so what about dragons uh this one's really awesome too first of all kind of a crazy thing but a little side note uh pretty much if you were living in ancient china and you found a fossil of anything if you found a fucking fossil of a fish it was like you just called it a dragon bone like any fossil was just called a dragon bone so 
that's just what they called fossils. They didn't have a word for it. At some point, somebody saw something, saw a skull or, you know, whatever, and thought it was a dragon bone, and then everything that they dug up out of the ground, that anybody dug up out of the ground, gets called dragon bones. So that's kind of just a little side note. But let's go to Austria, and let's get in our time machine and go back to the 1300s. I will kind of, well, let's take you on a little story, a little journey through about 500 years of one dragon, I guess is the best way to put it. But I'm going to give you a little teaser. We will take a quick break. This is going to be a long episode, so we may have three breaks today. But uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and I'll really get into this story because this one's really cool. So I'm excited to get into this. So sometime in the 1300s, again, you can put yourself in in these shoes if you want as well. But there's a group of workers, and they're in uh, Klagenfurt, Austria. Okay? So the Klagenfurt, Austria area. Uh, They basically report finding a mysterious-looking skull, and they were uh, not miners. I'm sorry. Uh, I think they were, like, they're working in a uh, quarry. So they were, they were, uh, it's not mining, it's uh, quarrying rocks and stuff, marble probably, or granite. So they're working in a quarry, and they find a, a mysterious looking skull while they're working. They basically are from this town, right? They're from the surrounding area, and so they have this legend of a dragon that used to terrorize the people in the town in the, in, you know, in the past. So they all have this understanding of a dragon that used to live here, that used to, you know, terrorize people. And so the men assume that they they find the skull of this legendary beast. And they take the skull and they display it in the town hall. And basically, like, show everybody, like, we found the skull of that dragon, you know, from, from our town's past, you know. And they displayed it for years. So... A few centuries later, a sculptor comes along. I think this is the 1500s, so we've jumped forward 200 years. So a sculptor comes along and is basically hired to uh, sculpt a statue of a dra- of that dragon, you know, the one from the past, and make like a big dragon sculpture, and it's also like a fountain. So he then gets access to the fucking skull to use that as a reference. So he kind of like takes it and examines it and bases his entire sculpture on what he's getting from, from looking at the skull, you know, and you can, you can still go, uh, well, you can go there to Klagenfurt and it's still there. You can see it in the town is still, you know, spitting out water and everything. And, but I mean, if you don't, if you happen to be there, go check it out. But if you're not, Google that shit, and uh, the dragon looks fucking crazy. It's the the good part's coming, so get ready. So, 
it's called the the Klagenfurt Dragon. Just Google that, or uh, it's also called the uh, <laughs> Lindworm Brunin. Uh, basically, a lindworm, which is kind of like there's just another old word for. I think it's either just like giant lizard or snake or or um, possibly dragon. Kind of like how the Leviathan is the, is for uh, you know whale or giant fish or you know sea sea beast or whatever. It's it's going to be a lot similar to that. So just do a Google search or go to Austria if you have the if you have the uh, means. That would be best way, I guess. I assume, <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, somehow I don't know how. I mean, this was made in 1500s, and it's been preserved through history so you can still go see it um and even more impressively the skull as well the actual dragon skull that they found has been preserved for well 1300s and it's 21 so that's 800 years you can still go see this skull in a museum Uh, it's in a museum now it's not in the town hall anymore uh, but it's in a museum in austria and you can still go see it so if you're in austria go check out that skull go check out the fucking dragon uh, the statue and email us. Let us know what you think of it. Send us some pictures and we'll, uh, we'll definitely post all that shit on, uh, social media whenever we get one. (laughs) Um, also side note, uh, or rabbit hole, we are going to do social medias here in um, sometime, but, uh, I'm going to go back whenever we do, I'm going to go back and post links and pictures and, and some information on each episode that we have done so far so it'll it'll definitely get i'll get all of this stuff on there at some point for you guys but you have a phone in your pocket so just google that shit and yeah email us let us know so sometime in the 1800s let's jump forward another 300 years so sometime in the 1800s so now we've been 500 years the skull was re-examined with kind of like the boom of modern paleontology and it this is when all that's kind of popping off so they're going back and looking at all these different things that wait is that really a dragon skull what is this you know what is that what is this so the skull was determined to be a wait for it woolly rhino and I think that we should rename woolly rhinos as dragons because this is what you need to Google search. Go fucking look for woolly rhinos skulls or woolly rhino skeletons or just type in woolly rhino and scroll down till you find a skull or skeleton. They look like a motherfucking dragon. If I found that shit, I would be like, that's a fucking dragon. Aside from the fact that I know what a rhino is and I the horn gives it away but also in all of our art and pictures and even modern day like all dragons have horns like what like that's part of dragons like oh maybe this is a real dragon and they actually have a horn you know on the front of their nose you know maybe that's actually how it is but to draw it and to make it look cooler we put them in other places but really what you look at is and when you see the skull is you see a bunch of teeth and you see a a pointy kind of like narrowed almost like reptilian looking skull and this giant horn and if the horn's not there it kind of looks more like a dragon but also because you're just seeing teeth 
if you examine it a little closer, you kind of, and you, and you have this knowledge and understanding, you can see that the teeth are flat. So you understand like it's an ungulate, like it, it ate, um, well, I guess an ungulate just means hoofs, but, or it means it has hoofs, but, uh, it, it ate grass. It was a grass eater, a veggie eater. So it didn't, you could have been able to tell that if you knew that, you know, when you just see it, you just see a lot of teeth and it's huge. And then if you look at even the whole skeleton, like they have them in museums and pictures all over Google, like those things are fucking scary looking. Like I would, even the whole skeleton, it's like got shorter, stubbier legs. So it's kind of like, looks like, I guess like a big crocodile, like how a crocodile stands up. Maybe that's how it walked, you know? And it just never really went into the, to the water, but it looks like a fucking giant dragon. Like I'm just saying that was so fascinating to me. So go look it up, check that out. It's going to be a lot of fun to like see and look through those pictures. Like what will woolly rhinos really look like from just the skeleton, like the skull and skeleton, the skeleton. <laughs> yeah. Let us know. Let us know what you think of that. Cause that was fucking crazy and there's a lot of similarities between what we think a dragon looks like and what a rhino looks like and i think that's funny because basically we used a real creature to get to an imaginary creature but then we use the image of the imaginary creature to determine how close we are to the real creature and that's kind of confusing but like basically we took a dragon we took something found something thought it was a dragon and then we used a dragon picture to determine that what we have here is not a dragon this is something else it's a rhino <laughs> so it's just kind of like this weird circle that um we did as a as a as a humanity i guess like oh that's not a dragon our dragons look like this this is you know, a rhino, duh. <laughs> like, it's just so funny. I just think it's, I think that distinction alone is just so fascinating. So, and so like, again, like you don't have, there were some people around with these megafaunas, but you don't have these stories trickling down. And if you do, all it is is like folklore now and legend and, you know, these giant beasts that roamed the earth before we were here. Like we have those stories too, but they were, we we're being told about dinosaurs. Maybe these people were being told about woolly rhinos and cave bears and, and, you know, all these other creatures that we don't have giant snakes and stuff, you know, that we don't have anymore. Giant, uh, Gigantopithecus, like that's another one that, like we talked about in the Patterson-Gimlin film episodes, like maybe these stories have kind of just been around being told at the campfire about these beasts in the woods, you know, these giant hairy wild men or these giant, you know, giant 50 foot anacondas or pythons like <laughs> sounds crazy but some of the shit was real you know and how does yeah like how does an oral history record an extinct animal you know do we even like at that point in time know that animals go extinct or we just think that they went somewhere else and we can't find them you know we don't know that they're gone especially without being able to travel across the seas like Maybe the lions here are gone, but there's still lions in Africa, you know, or maybe the elephants here are gone or the horses or whatever in this area, but there's still elephants in Asia or in, you know, China or in 
you know, whatever, like insert your place and animal here. And then like, you just think even like nowadays, like our paleo art is like, it, it, it has to be updated every few years, you know, like, I mean, even 60 years ago, think, just imagine 60 years ago, we have a completely different understanding of dinosaurs now. I mean, for one, okay, take the Brachiosaurus and the Brontosaurus. I'm pretty sure those are the two that uh, the controversy happened over, but basically they had a Brontosaurus bones and they had Brachiosaurus bones and they realized, oh, these are the same fucking animal. So, you know, because this guy discovered one in China and this guy discovered one in, you know, Peru or something. Who was named first? The Brachiosaurus. So now there was never a Brontosaurus. It was always just the Brachiosaurus. So if you haven't heard that, it's kind of a crazy story to look up. But yeah, we used to have two dinosaurs and then we found out they were both the same dinosaur. So whoever discovered it first got to take the name. And don't quote me on that because it could have been a little bit of a darker story. Like it could have been like, you know, whoever was more white got to keep the name, you know, like that, that was probably how it was. I don't know the specifics of that part of the story, but you know, history has kind of shown us how these, some of these types of things happen as, as bogus as they are that might have been the case in that in that situation you know the the one that's more privileged gets to be gets to have the name whoever discovered it that was more privileged gets to be the official name or whatever now you know that stuff the shit fucking happens all the time and i'm not advocating for it at all it's just fucking bullshit but that might have been how it happened you know but nonetheless we realized that we had two creatures named different things and discovered at different times at different places and we found out that oh they're the same thing so that just happened recently <laughs> like also recently we have changed our ideas on their like feathers like in the first uh jurassic park movies there weren't a lot of feathers and then in the newer ones there's a whole lot more feathers and they <laughs> you know because we've discovered and made some advances in in the in the science itself and in the technology, you know, that we're using to do the science with. So we, well, even another example. So like the feathers is for one, we think they're more like birds now and less like reptiles when back then we thought they were more like reptiles and less like birds. And we, we thought that the T-Rex walked a lot more upright and dragged his tail and was just kind of like these, we thought dinosaurs were just kind of like these slow lumbering giants that, you know, they needed to eat as much as they could because they were so huge and they couldn't move very quickly. And so T-Rexes were a fucking puzzle to us. Uh, we also found out that like they have um, similar lungs to birds, a lot of birds. And so like, I think it was a, a discovery with a T-Rex. Somebody um, at my work was telling me about this, but basically like, the way a bird can fly is that it its lungs are different. It has like a sac that uh, filters the that holds oxygen constantly, and it's basically it's breathing constantly. It's not like inhaling and exhaling. It's doing those simultaneously, from how I understand it. So I guess we've discovered that the T Rex could do that too. So basically, it couldn't fly, so it could just run constantly, and that's why birds need that type of system is so they can fly constantly and constantly have oxygen. Otherwise they would get too tired and they would, you know, they would 
wouldn't get enough oxygen. So I guess now the, the thinking is that T-Rexes were able to pretty much just run as long as they wanted to, to, to hunt something or to chase something, you know, they were constantly getting oxygen and their breathing was a little bit different, more similar to birds. So also I know in some dinosaur species, we found, um, evidence of like a crop, like a bird has, like they have like, you know, the rocks and that, and that spot that kind of breaks up the, uh, food and helps them digest it and stuff. So if I can remember correctly, maybe it's been disproven now, but if I can remember correctly, we found evidence of, of dinosaurs having a crop. So again, another kind of, um, attribute that's similar to birds. It's comparable to birds. And just even 50, 60 years ago, we didn't know a lot of those things or have a lot of those understandings, you know? So it goes full circle, like all the way till now, we're still finding out things that we didn't think that they were a certain way, you know? So, so I'm going to recommend a couple books real quick, and then we'll get into these, into these books and really dive into the main crux of the matter. So, cause so far we've covered dragons and we've covered cyclopses and giants. And so now we need to get into the main meat of this show, which is, um, griffins. So a couple books all by the same author. Um, there's a book called the first fossil hunters, a book called, uh, flying snakes and griffin claws. <laughs> And then there's a there's another book called uh well that no never mind that one doesn't really have anything to do with what what our topic is today with griffins so um, so I'd recommend flying snakes and griffin claws or uh, the first fossils uh, the first fossil hunters so all of her books are pretty good she's got a couple more that I'm really interested in reading and she's got one the one that I was about to mention uh, is about Greek fire and uh, scorpion bombs and so I'm gonna eventually get that one and, and read uh do an episode on that one so but anyways uh so those two books and they're by the author adrian mayer i would highly recommend those two books now they're they're gonna be really history heavy and what i mean by that is it's kind of hard to get into i'll be completely honest with you there's a lot of good information and but a lot of it is just like <laughs> I put it like this: If you're not like super into Greek and Roman history and that, the Mediterranean history and that type of stuff, it's a lot of names and a lot of groups of people that you've never heard of, and it's hard to kind of follow it sometimes. Like she's using some of these Greek philosophers and these Greek travelers that a lot of them, uh, some of the main ones that I'm going to get into, I've heard of and I know who they are, but some of them I they're just names to me right now and I don't have any reference for for who they are or what they've done or you know whatever and so a lot of even the groups of people that's that's being used like a lot of these you know just nomadic peoples or, or different cultures that you know from from Central Asia ancient Central Asia or ancient Greece or Rome or you know some of it it just it just can it's a little bit overwhelming it can feel a little bit overwhelming and it makes it hard to follow it so that being said if you can kind of get through those moments 
she makes some really persuasive points. And when I first got onto this topic, I was blown away. Shout out to our fake history podcast. They did an episode very similar to the one I'm going to do today, and at least this next part is going to be very similar to his episode. But uh, I heard his episode, and I was just like, God, I got to get her book. I got to read that shit. I got to do my own, and then I got to fucking do an episode because that was the fucking bomb. So I'll give him a shout-out. Um, Sebastian at Our Fake History, they, uh, they did an excellent job. And I would also say, if you haven't heard of Our Fake History, they're they're pretty awesome. Um, they do more of like a, uh, they don't do conspiracies and aliens and Bigfoot. He's not really about that. He just kind of dives into things that are, he does a good episode on uh, Liver Eaton Johnson and kind of where that story came from and was that guy a real guy. Uh, he has some, some good pirate uh, stories that he does like but these are like people in history so he really goes through like who is the real person what is the real history that we know about you know this or that or like let me i'll just look up a couple real quick for everybody uh okay so he does like three parters on columbus uh and, and that's another cool thing why i like this guy and this show so much is because he does um super deep dives uh he did one on Houdini that was pretty good. Uh, he did go into a lot of like the um, the spiritualism and the stuff with Arthur Conan Doyle a little bit more than I did, and I tried to I tried to do a little bit more of the earlier life, um, but I mean he has some great ones. Like he did a couple episodes on. Uh, uh, the the Library of Alexandria. He does the uh, the Aztecs and and Cortez and stuff. So he's got a bunch of really good episodes. I would recommend his stuff. He's got some good ones. Um, like he did one on does the does Ethiopia have the Ark of the Covenant? So that was like kind of a cool one. He's got a bunch of cool ones all over the all over the place. I think he did one on Bruce Lee. So he he he, he just does stuff all over the place, but basically just history, not so much what I do but if you haven't heard his show and some of the some of his topics you know scroll through his episodes and you know send him an email and tell him I sent you that way <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm hoping at one point I'd like to get him on and do an episode with him and then go on an episode of his show so maybe look out for that because I'm uh, going to be contacting some people and trying to do some interviews soon so that will be coming down the pipe but anyways Back to Adrian Mayer. So, Our Fake History Podcast put me onto her book, and I got it, read it. It was amazing. Uh, the first Fossil Hunters, again, is the title, and again, she makes some really persuasive and convincing points. So, let's take a quick break. One more quick break before we um, really get into her book and kind of what she's, what she says and what she's saying. And, uh... Yeah, I hope you guys enjoy these tunes, and we will be right back. All right, and we're back. 
So let's just dive right back into this. Adrian Mayer, in her book, she makes the point that places with large fossil deposits are also usually areas that have a rich mythic history kind of surrounding them. So you think about like places like the Mediterranean with the Greek mythology and, and Roman mythology, and then you have places like Central Asia and, and even like Central America. I'm sure it gets, you know, these these fossil-related myths, you know, if, that, if that's, I guess, the best way to put it. And just like we discussed, you know, paleo artists had to kind of use their imagination along with the most current scientific understanding of the natural world, you know, i.e. anatomy and locomotion and animal habits and so on, and come up with what they think the creature might look like. So even like nowadays, it's hard for us to do that. We didn't used to put feathers on them, but now we put more feathers on them because we've discovered that they most likely had feathers, Uh, at least specifically you know certain species have been preserved and you can tell the feathers and almost the pigment you know like we've even got ways to kind of see what pigment it might have been you know and and really just kind of because of the advancements in our technology we've been able to rework our understanding of what we know about dinosaurs so the creativity is really just it's up to the artist's discretion at a certain point like all you're given is the bones and you got to try and figure out how this creature actually looks and things like colors, things like fur, how the fur actually looked, you know, um, all cats skulls are pretty much the same, right? Like, but we have a bunch of different types of cats. (laughs) So like, I mean, if you think like, I'm talking house cats, like, I mean, I have like an all black, just a regular short haired black cat. Um, but then there's, some black cats that are just super fluffy you know or the color is not (laughs) important but i mean how do you know if okay i have two skulls of cats of house cats they're the same breed right imagine they're the same breed so the skulls look pretty much identical but one cat was a tabby and one cat was a calico you know (laughs) it's like how do you know those things it's really up to the artist's discretion and so we're going to have to constantly rework those things uh those things adrian mayer argues that these ancient paleontologists were inspired if not directly influenced by the spot the fossils that they were uncovering so again imagine you're you know you're farming and you're digging or you're building a building or you're building a tomb and you dig up a fossil and then these myths are kind of inspired by those you know physical things that you pick up a giant tooth okay this must be something from a dragon, you know, (laughs) and then it just goes on. Maybe somebody found a megalodon tooth and the best explanation is a fucking giant lizard, giant dragon, or, you know, whatever. So like, again, some fossils when found, they kind of aid in confirming mythic creatures like, oh, you know, these are huge giant bones like the femur of a of a mammoth or something oh this must be the bones of goliath you know or the bones of uh odin or the bones of thor you know or the bones of zeus you know so like enter your mythic mythology here you know but uh it it can kind of confirm what you've already believed uh however mayor poses that the first encounters with some of these fossils really sparked the evolution really sparked the evolutionary journey 
of the myth that is the griffin and that's really her whole like her whole book is really just persuading you on that theory and that idea and she's not really trying to convince you but she's laying out her evidence and it it ends up being pretty persuasive and pretty convincing i don't know how this hasn't it, it's kind of right there in front of you like it makes a lot of sense it's very logical i don't know how it hasn't you know kind of already been understood beforehand but she's the one who's kind of laying this out and when you step back it kind of seems like a oh duh like that makes sense you know but she goes as far to say that all the early art sculptures and stories and writings about the griffin were pretty much just first attempts at describing a real creature you know the first attempts of paleontology the first attempts of paleo art you know and so what the, what the fuck is a griffin let's just drop an f-bomb what what is a griffin you know what what actually is it if you kind of picture it in your mind at least described by ancient peoples right uh, it's the body of a lion the head and beak of an eagle and sometimes a lot of times it's depicted with wings and sometimes with um like it has like bigger ears or big ears that kind of like i wouldn't say like rabbit ears but they're kind of like that maybe like deer shaped ears so i mean that's kind of like it has a lion's tail lion's body an eagle's head it has like feathers around the head and chest area and wings you know if so there's some depictions with wings some without but usually you know obviously if it has the eagle's head it's going to have the feathers and then the beak of course now this is important to know because in her book she makes this this uh distinction about the griffin uh so all of the early writings or pretty much all the writing that we have on the griffin comes from the greeks and the romans a lot of the cultures that we think or that she thinks the griffins came from the griffin myth or legends came from are or oral histories so they don't have anything they don't have any written languages or anything written down maybe some cave paintings but and, and definitely art but not no specific written language and there's one that i'll get to in a minute that that we'll go into a little deeper on so again this is extremely important but mayor points out that the greeks and the romans didn't write about the griffins like they were a mythical creature at least not the same way that they wrote about other mythical creatures you know they, they wrote about them like they were real animals they were just exotic so for example pegasus uh so this is a hybrid uh it's a hybrid animal it's a, it's a you know it's like the griffin it's a bird and a horse or a hearse, horse with bird wings and the Pegasus was the offspring of Poseidon or possibly um, a Gorgon you may have heard of named Medusa. So they thought that Pegasus was possibly the offspring of Medusa, but there's some tellings that say, most tellings I think is what it is, that say that they thought Pegasus came from uh, Poseidon. So it's also uh, thought to have supernatural powers, mainly that of being able to fly. Now, another example is you have the chimera, and the chimera is a crazy-looking fucking animal. When I read it, I pictured in my head the uh, the giant scorpion beast, and that's not the chimera. I didn't actually look up what 
the giant scorpion beast is called. But anyways, um, the chimera is something completely different. It's a, uh, a lion head. It's, it's just hard to explain. So it's a lion goat beast with a snake tail. So it's basically a lion's head and body. And then on the back, it's got like a goat head coming out of like its back, right? It's like center of its back. A goat's head is coming out kind of like all the way down to the chest, but no legs, no front hooves. And so it's like you get a, a big part of the neck and the mane. So you can kind of move its neck around or whatever. So that's coming directly out of the back. And then it has a snake instead of a tail. And and the snake, you know, has a, has a head and a, it's a snake. Sometimes it's pictured with birds, feet and legs, kind of like the griffin. And uh, it's thought it's also thought of to have supernatural powers, and it's the offspring of chaos monsters, uh, Typhon and Idchidna. Idchidna, and so that's like the origin of that thing. It's it's this crazy beast that came from these chaos monsters, you know. Then you have the Minotaur. It has a bull's head and tail on a human's body this part is really fucking awesome so first before i get into this um just go look up some some pictures of the chimera this lion goat snake beast it it it's look it looks fucking crazy they draw it in a lot of art and there's a lot of statues of it and it just looks like a fucking crazy fucking beast man i don't know how you come up with that but i guess if you have some chaos monsters and they have an offspring you can kind of imagine (laughs) what it is but uh this part's gonna be really awesome i found this fascinating the uh, story of the minotaur and how the minotaur came to be so i'm basically just reading from wikipedia but i've I've heard this story multiple times so this is just kind of to remind me but um after ascending the throne of the island of crete uh, minos competed with his brother as the ruler Minos prayed to the sea god Poseidon to send him a snow-white bull as a sign of the god's favor. Minos was to sacrifice the bull to honor Poseidon. But, owing to the bull's beauty, he decided instead to keep him. Minos believed that the god would accept the substitute sacrifice. To punish Minos, Poseidon made Minos' wife, uh, Pasiphae, fall in love with the bull, the the snow-white bull. Pasiphae had a craftsman, Daedalus, fashion a hollow cow, which she climbed into to mate with the bull. Now, before we go any further, Daedalus may not sound super familiar, but he is the guy who is the father of Icarus. He's also the guy who made the shoes with wings for Icarus so they could escape the labyrinth which he also built. We'll get into that in just one more second, but at some point he built the labyrinth, and at some point later down the road, he was imprisoned in the labyrinth, and him and his son had to get out, so they created He He invented the uh, shoes with wings, and they could fly. That's a, a rough <laughs> retelling of that story. We can get into that some other time, but... For the purposes of this so that's who daedalus is the father of icarus so back to pasiphae she mates with this snow white bull from poseidon 
and she bore a son named Asterius. Um, Asterius the Minotaur. Pasiphae nursed the Minotaur, but he grew in size and became ferocious. As the unnatural offspring of a woman and a beast, the Minotaur had no natural source of nourishment and thus devoured humans for substance. So Minos, following the advice of the oracle at Delphi, had Daedalus construct a gigantic labyrinth to hold the Minotaur. Its location was near um, Minos's palace. So I thought that was fascinating. I love all that, all that stuff. So again, that's you have another mythical creature that was had origins in supernatural, or had like a supernatural origin. You know, it's it's a woman and a beast from a god, or two gods, or two chaos monsters, or you know, they have these specific origins when it comes to the griffin no such myth or history was created for the griffin in greek culture or in roman culture or in any of these it's just like in history when you see writings about the griffin um mayor points out that there aren't really any stories there aren't really any stories in the in the greek mythological canon that really feature the griffin nothing about its powers nothing about its origins again and instead, it's it's just treated like an exotic animal, again, like from a faraway land. You know, the griffin shows up in works of historians. It shows up in works of travelers, geographers, like people who make you know maps and have been traveling around. You know, so it that's where its its legend is showing up. Its myth is showing up there, not so much in like the Greek Greek uh, mythological canon, or you know the Roman. Uh, mythics you know and stories and stuff so so right there is an important distinction um that really just comes from kind of taking a step back and looking at it and seeing like oh wait they're not writing about this creature the same way they're writing about pegasus or the minotaur or centaurs or um the chimera or medusa or i can go on the kraken or you know these types of like i mean that might not be uh as much as greek but like it's not getting written about the same ways as some of these other creatures so again all of these writings that we get from the greeks about the griffins are coming from historical writers or travelers or you know people traveling to different lands trading and and hearing these stories right so it's important to note that in all of these writings about the griffin the author whoever is the author is always careful to situate them in a specific geographical location so for example where do lions live where do aliens or uh, <laughs> where do elephants live where do kangaroos live so you know kangaroos live in australia you don't find them anywhere else like lions are in africa you know Elephants are in Africa. They're in Asia, not really anywhere else. So it's it's right away it has a similarity with how we treat other animals. You know, uh, giraffes are in Africa. Griffins are in, you know, Isidonia. <laughs> and so that's kind of an easy comparison to see. Like, okay, they really are treating this like an actual living animal, even though it may be exotic or foreign. They're not. It's not here on a daily basis, but, you know, like you can't just go out and find a griffin anywhere, you know. It has a, it has a, basically, so 
the story goes or the legend goes that the griffin lives in a vast desert of central asia and it basically just guards gold it lives there and it guards the gold um the greeks were the first to hear about the griffins from a group of people called the scythians and no (laughs) it's not a group of dark star wars lords (laughs) that are out in ancient Egypt or uh, ancient Central Asia. <laughs> it's a group of nomadic people. The Scythians were a nomadic people in Central Asia and they were basically horse people and not the way that centaurs are. <laughs> um, they they were basically master riders. Uh, they pretty much lived on horseback and they roamed a huge area. Uh, I have it written down somewhere, but they uh they pretty much had a territory from ukraine all the way to mongolia all the way to like western china pretty much like they they had a huge area that they um traveled in and i think one of the main places was um a place called isidonia and that was like one of their eastern lands or whatever so they're, they're master writers. Again, they don't have an oral history, or they don't have a, a written language, so they only have a, a oral history. But they, even though they didn't have any written language, they did have art, and they did have ornate objects, and swords, and jewelry, and, and you know pots, and things. Like, they were really experienced or, or um, proficient metal workers. So they had swords, they had jewelry, they had things of gold, and they had a lot of these things that had griffin art and griffin artifacts, you know, griffin designs on their pots and their swords and their, you know, their blades and their handles and their jewelry and all this stuff is gold and it a lot of it depicts griffins, right? And so some of the earliest known griffin art comes from the Scythians. So you have this group of people called the Scythians. Um, they live in basically modern Kazakhstan is kind of, we'll get to that again in a minute, but that kind of area, you know, from Ukraine to Mongolia to China, like that whole area, they, they covered it. So now enters the picture a Greek man named Aristeus. Uh, he's the first to go that far east in the Scythian territory, and he goes to a place called... Actually, I'm not sure. Okay, so he headed east. I don't know if he went to east, um, like the farthest east territory of the Scythians. I think he just went far east, and he went to a Scythian territory called Isidonia. I think it's what he called it. I'm not sure if that's what it was actually called, but he called it Isidonia. Uh, So basically he hears a... uh, legend of a griffin and the scythians tell aristeus about basically a fierce lion-sized predator with a wicked curved beak you know the beak of an eagle and they had to fight the griffins to get their gold you know that's kind of what they the griffins protected the gold and they had to fight them to get some of it uh, it's the first time that griffins show up in writing is from uh, Aristeus's travels. So later comes a man named Herodotus. I'm going to possibly do an entire episode on him, but 
maybe not but i'm i guarantee we'll mention him throughout some of these episodes because he he's around i'll put it like that um I'm, I'm pretty sure i've mentioned him before on a couple episodes but if i haven't i will again in the future but he was known as the father of history he was also known as the father of lies uh he's kind of a guy he just kind of wrote everything down uh, whether it was hearsay whether it was just myth or lore he kind of just wrote down everything that he wanted to that he wanted to he controlled the media i guess is the way to put it but uh it's it's basically he, a lot of his shit was just kind of like um i'll put it like this it's understood that he's both the father of history and the father of lies so you have to kind of take his words with a grain of salt and really investigate is this something that's true or is this something that's not so true like he has some writings on uh, atlantis and people kind of like you can't always take you can't always trust what he's writing so but basically, I mean, pretty much the same thing. Uh, on his travels, he travels to the land of the Scythians, and he hears a story of the griffin. And basically, he explains it a little bit differently. But uh, there were these people called the uh, the Aramaspians. And they are one-eyed men who fight, griffin, uh, fight griffins for gold in basically the Far East deserts. So there's a little bit different of a story here. They're no longer... It, before it was told that it was the Scythians were the ones fighting for gold. Now it's these Aramaspians who were like one-eyed men, maybe Cyclopses, uh, fighting griffins for gold in a Far East desert. So it's getting pushed to a different location, but it's a little bit further. Um, it's still Far East. And it turns out, um, there's been some analysis and some work done on this, but it turns out that at least this time Herodotus was most likely reporting honestly basically they've analyzed the uh the words and some of the language that he used to tell this story and some of the syntax uh it matches up with ancient Asian uh Central Asian dialects and and stuff so they've kind of proven that he was most likely telling the truth on this story so a few centuries later you get to 77 AD and it's the height of the Roman Empire. Uh, you have a guy named Pliny the Elder, or Pliny the Elder. Pliny, at this point, publishes his first ten books of the natural history. Uh, it's basically an encyclopedia. It's basically describing every single thing. It attempts to, to describe or categorize all the knowledge and understanding of the natural world at that time. Right, so it's gonna have something about every animal that they know about. It's gonna have something about every single thing they know about. It's a crazy endeavor to set out on. I mean, imagine trying to do that today. Like, yeah, we don't really have to because we have the internet. But also, like, have you ever searched for something on the internet and it not been there? And you, and then it's like, oh shit, I can be the first one to put this on the internet, you know? And it's that shit's kind of crazy sometimes, but. They didn't have that back then, so it's it's up to to plenty the elder to put these you know put this information out there for the common person, or f really for the academics. But <laughs> so in the section about griffins, uh, plenty cites uh, Aristeus and he cites uh, Herodotus. He cites a few other um, Greek philosophers, 
and really just kind of a few other times where it gets mentioned and you know so he cites a few other people he mentions that the oh i'm sorry i meant to say herodotus one thing that's kind of funny is that when he heard the story that he was told about the uh, about the griffins he separated some things out he reported the story the same but he kind of laughed at the fact that they said the uh Aramaspians, you know were these one-eyed men fighting griffins he was like okay griffins fine but one-eyed men fighting them for gold no 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 that's probably not true the griffin yeah it's an exotic animal from you know whatever but the one-eyed men fighting them no i don't know about all that so he kind of makes a distinction there with like oh well this part's true but that part's not you know and the part that's true is the griffin part so that's kind of the important part there so when we get to plenty the elder he mentions the aramaspians the one-eyed fighting one-eyed men fighting for griffin gold he mentions them again and this is kind of also where we get the first uh, mention of griffin's nests from there they kind of begin depicting griffin's guarding nests uh guarding you know you have the the story of griffin's uh weaving gold into their nests or i think plenty kind of hears that oh they weave you know there's this myth that they weave gold into their nests and they guard it you know and plenty kind of assumes that um more accurately they were probably kicking up gold when they were bur- burrowing and building their nests and that's kind of where that weaving the nest with gold comes in you know and he kind of like makes that distinction a little bit like uh, if I can remember correctly, if that's if that's the right person that did that, but basically he kind of like, oh well, they must have been burrowing, so that's how they get the gold in the nest myth, you know. And then next comes a, another Roman guy who I am now a huge fan of just because of his name. And if I get if I have another child or another pet, I will name them after him. Enter a man named A Alien. <laughs> If you haven't heard of him, don't feel bad. I hadn't either. I knew about Pliny the Elder and Herodotus and uh, Aristeus. I had never heard of a alien, which I should have given his name. Anyways, he makes he comes in and makes the distinction that about griffins that uh, basically they live in the mountains in near gold, you know, in the far east in these you know desert areas. They live in these mountains and they're not there protecting gold. They're there protecting their young. Animals don't protect gold. You know, they protect their young. So then he gets kind of some more stories, and basically it's not people fighting the griffins anymore. It's people sneaking around the griffins' nests and searching for gold in the night. And if they can get away with their lives, then they've got two prizes you know, their lives and the gold, you know. Um, and he also kind of describes the the colors a little bit in more detail. So he says, like, they have a big red chest, um, black ridge, uh, like feathers or black going down their, their the back of their head and their back. I think he had black-tipped beak. He really kind of goes into, like, the descriptions of what it, what it looked like and the color and the size. He, he even, there's even stories of, like, if you can steal one of the chicks 
um, you can, you know, you can sell it, you can make money, but there's no way any adult can take on, or there's no way any man can take on an adult griffin, you know, that just won't, you, you won't win. And kind of like, as the griffin's legend grows from there in lore, a alien is trying to kind of separate the fact from the fiction or the myth, you know, and ultimately attributing what he knows about real animals and kind of dismissing the unnatural qualities or the ideas about the griffin. So he kind of really just, you know, again, wild animals don't guard gold. Of course, now we know that griffins aren't real, right? Then where did this come from? But, you know, where are we getting this? I've never seen a, a, a David Attenborough special on griffins. And here comes... Adrian Mayer to explain everything for us. So, and make these, you know, connect these dots for us. So, jump forward to, I think, 1800s or no, past that, uh, 1900s. Gosh, I don't remember the dates on this one. Anyways, modern paleontology is booming, right? Modern paleontologists have long recognized the wealth and riches and abundance of fossils in Western than the Western China region and, you know, Central Asia. Basically, China has a crazy history with fossils. All the fossils, again, I think I mentioned this earlier. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, but all the fossils in China were called dragon bones, you know, and so that's just something that gets into the language, you know, it's permeated so deep there. And a crazy thing is, so so of naturally, you know, these bones get kind of put on a pedestal, right? So they get viewed as like they're good luck or, you know, it's a sign from the gods that you're favored or whatever. But even past that, you know, a lot of farmers end up finding them and they can go and sell them. You know, they're thought to have magic powers or, or you know magic luck or whatever and so they're valuable and so they can go sell them and a lot of it kind of becomes a little bit of a lucrative business like you know when you're not farming in the winter time you can go out and dig and find fossils and go and sell them and so in a lot of apothecaries and you know just medicine shops and drug stores they start selling all of these dinosaur bones or dragon bones or <laughs> extinct megafauna bones and it's, it just like gets into the society and everybody's just, the word for them is dragon bones, you know? So in 1885, it was reported that 20 tons of fossils came out of the Chinese drugstores. Um, and that's not to mention like the tons that didn't come out, you know what I mean? Like, and that's not just being sold. I mean, like when I say come out of China drugstores, I mean, America brought back like 20 tons of fossils just by purchasing them in apothecaries and drug shops and different places like that. Like it was so abundant there and permeated in their society that you didn't have to go do an excavation and, and do a dig. You could just go to a, a drugstore or a shop and find some and buy them and just, you know, take that back with you. So, you know, those things, those things, those types of things happen. So now enters a man named Roy Chapman Andrews. Some would say good guy, some would say not a good guy. I'll let you decide. So Andrews hears the news and kind of gets excited 
for an adventure. You know, he hears these stories and about these crazy dragon bones and these fossils coming out of uh, Chinese apothecaries and drug shops and and these fossils that have been coming out of china and and central asia and so he gets excited of course you know he wants an adventure and he plans an expedition to china Um, basically he organizes an expedition to the edges of the uh, gobi desert and he makes a number of significant uh paleological discoveries i mean the gobi desert is so dry and arid andrews gets there and him and his team they were able to find like perfectly preserved fossils like pretty much untouched you know and from from not just from one species or anything like multiple species multiple discoveries Uh, most importantly for this story was he discovered uh the wait for it protoceratops uh, it's a four-legged dinosaur, dinosaur about six to eight feet long, with a unique skull that has kind of like a ridge that like flares out towards the back, and, or perhaps most importantly, it had a huge curved beak. Um, basically, just imagine a triceratops, a little bit smaller, and no horns, and there you go, you know? So, if you haven't already, or if you're not already... Uh, get your damn phone out and Google that shit because a protoceratops skeleton looks insane. Uh, to an average person, you know, without modern scientific understanding, like, it's a four-legged animal the size of a lion or a tiger with a beak, you know? Like, if I'm out there and I never knew about dinosaurs, like, not a lot of, like, imagination needs to go into it to think, like, logically and come up with a griffin. You know, it's not like that. It, it looks like a griffin's skeleton. You know, if you don't know about dinosaurs, but you know about griffins, or even if you don't, right? So imagine you don't, right? You don't know about dinosaurs or griffins, and you find this thing, and you have to real, you have to figure out what it is, and it's perfectly preserved. So like, you have all of the bones exactly how they're laid out. That's what's kind of crazy. Like some of these, you know, they didn't need to w- wonder like. How do these fit together? How do these, are all these bones the same animal? Are all these bones here? Am I missing any bones? Like some of them were perfectly preserved, laid out the way the animal died, just the bones, you know? And so you get an immediate picture of what it is. And now you have to think, what did that animal look like with meat and fur or feathers or scales or whatever? And that's not an easy thing to do. So you obviously can see where we're going, but that's it makes a whole lot of sense like kind of how i mentioned a minute ago like it's very logical that this is kind of the way things happened this is another like extremely significant find on this trip to this story specifically is the discovery of perfectly preserved dinosaur eggs and not just that perfectly preserved dinosaur eggs still in their nests perfectly preserved this is the first time dino eggs are ever found or just discovered you know like this isn't we haven't found those before we found fossils but we never found eggs so this is like huge and so here's a little side note but like at first it was thought that all of so they were finding a lot of nests and a lot of eggs and a lot of these a lot of fossils just a lot of different types of fossils a lot of protoceratops a lot of different other species and a lot of eggs and a lot of nests and so at first they thought all of the eggs were and nests were from 
those uh, protoceratops. Um, but later they kind of realized and found that it was a number of other species as well as the protoceratops. The eggs were multiple different, or not just protoceratops. But Andrews comes back to America. He's a hero. Uh, he basically, I think he ends up being um, the president of the... Oh, man, what, what did he do? He did a bunch of things. I think he was like president of Smithsonian or Natural History Museum, something like that. He just, he was famous, you know. He's the guy who discovered dinosaur bones and the Far East, you know. And he discovered eggs and protoceratops and all these other creatures. Like, So he's just famous. Uh, so I mentioned earlier, some thought he was a good guy, some thought he was a bad guy. So China and a lot of... Chinese people view on Andrews is pretty negative, uh, kind of actually quite the opposite. They feel like he exploited China's like chaotic political climate and basically just like they felt like he should have never taken all the, the fossils back to America. You know, they should have stayed in China. And so they have this kind of sour taste like you should have never been allowed to, to do what you did, but we had other shit going on so we couldn't keep an eye on your ass. And so because of that, China was like, uh-uh. No more is like that's not gonna happen again, and so they kind of closed off their access to fossil hunting and paleontology to outsiders. So I mean, I'm sure they still did some plenty, you know, internally, but nothing, you know, people weren't coming in from America certainly. <laughs> so it wasn't until the 1980s that China kind of loosened its grip on the paleontological excavations. In 1986, a joint expedition was carried out by china and canada and produced pretty much more of the same you know tons more eggs tons more protoceratops you know all the shit nests everything there's another one called uh fuck i can't remember the name it's like a saca sacasaurus or something or sacadosaurus something like that um named for its like big parrot beak so it's a little bit more rounded if that makes sense so those were found a lot and it, like so much to the point where like uh there's one quote that's like it's a ridiculous amount of dinosaur bones or it's a ridiculous amount of fossils basically it's hard to not find one in the gobi desert if you're you know if you're looking so mayor points out that this particular expedition was the same place that it was thought of to be ancient isodonia so that's extremely important this is the eastern edges of the scythian territory one main one of the main crux of Adrian Mayer's argument is that the ease at which these fossils were found. So with the wind shifting the sand and an area with low vegetation, as well as, you know, it's arid, it's dry, it's not a lot of erosion, not a lot of water to kind of feed bacteria and help things decay so you know you don't have a lot of that as well as the surrounding rock being pretty crumbly and soft so it seems kind of hard to not find fossils in this area you know and that's kind of one of her points like it, it was kind of easy for people to find them you didn't have to be like you know to have all this like equipment to be able to dig down and find where these bones are you could just kind of walk out and and stumble across them pretty easily um also because the area, a lot of these fossils ended up being found in like really dramatic poses. Like a lot of the protoceratops were found standing on all fours or even like standing like back on its on two hind legs, you know, so like two legs up, two legs down. And 
so that's kind of just like another thing that adds like some drama to the story and some significance when you come across it. It's like, wait a second, this isn't just dinosaur bones or dragon bones or whatever you call it. It's also like standing up, you know, its head is pointed up, you know, or whatever, however you come across it. Like it's, it's in a very dramatic, something very dramatic happened. So all these facts put together is where Adrian Mayer kind of connects the dots and as I'm sure you at home have already done, griffins were mistaken as protoceratops. In my opinion, we should rename the protoceratops the griffin because we did it with the brachiosaurus. Like if whoever discovered it first got the name, you know, I mean, I think griffins are real and protoceratops is just some bullshit that somebody... (laughs) I think we need to rethink our names of uh, some of these creatures so i mean that's kind of i mean that's the whole argument that's the whole that's the whole book that's kind of the whole genre that adrian mayer has kind of created her whole little scientific niche uh niche (laughs) but basically she's arguing that ancient people ancient scythians came across these nests just like how we still can today in the gobi desert came across these nests with eggs in them came across some of these creatures with giant beaks and had to kind of make sense of it and there's born the um, myth of the griffin and it's kind of easy to like it just it makes sense I mentioned earlier but like it's just kind of like oh duh like when you stand back and you're like wait a second this all makes sense like if it was me and I didn't have any understanding of dinosaurs I didn't have any understanding that animals could go extinct right like the most you maybe would think is that they're not around here anymore but they're probably around somewhere else or you know you just don't know some things you just don't know and you just kind of accept that like like we do today i just don't know for sure if there's aliens out there you know like you keep going back to like i just don't know for sure if insert your faith here (laughs) or whatever you know like whatever you're like choosing you know whatever you're believing in for this specific topic like we don't know for sure if coelacanths are extinct but we're pretty sure you know like that type of thing like some things you kind of assume but you're not 100 percent. you don't know where the mammoth went but you know it's not around here anymore you don't really i guess you might not necessarily have a concept that things go extinct like that so i mean again like how do you it if the scythians came across it and this is kind of the point that adrian mayer makes is that like they wouldn't have had an understanding. They wouldn't have interpreted it like, oh, this is something that's extinct. They would have seen it and been like, oh, well, a couple months ago I came across some other bones that didn't have any flesh on them either, you know, and were picked clean too. Like this isn't the first time they've come across something that's been picked clean and also not been able to identify exactly what it is. So when you see something at least like that that you've never seen before with a giant beak, then you start to think like, okay, well, what the heck actually is this thing? And then you come up with maybe what it is. And honestly, it's really close. <laughs> I don't think anybody could have done it any better without, without the understanding of the Cretaceous, the Triassic, and the Jurassic. Like we don't, there's no way you would think, oh, this is a dinosaur. Or maybe I guess like again, like maybe you come up with a dragon because you're familiar with Komodo dragons or you're familiar with giant lizards. And so then you kind of, okay, this must be this scary creature. And 
so on and so forth. So similar to the dragons and the woolly, uh, woolly rhino, similar to the mammoth and the cyclops. Like these are things that are just outdated paleo art. <laughs> I don't think she said that once in her book. She said, she basically said that in, in different words, but she didn't say that it's outdated. Like how our paleo art was outdated in the 1960s. I guess she kind of lets you come to that conclusion in your own mind, but but yeah, I mean, these are basically just outdated paleo art. This is what we thought the protoceratops looked like before we understood everything we understand nowadays, you know, with modern science and technology and advances. So, um I was meaning to take another break, but we're kind of at the end. There have been some criticisms not a whole lot, at least according to um, this part I'm, I'm using from Our Fake History, but I trust his work more than I trust Herodotus. So if you hear this, Sebastian, I hope that's a compliment and I'm a big fan of your show. So yeah, he basically states that uh, she doesn't have a whole lot of criticisms. The people that do criticize her are pretty gentle and aren't really as aggressively criticizing her. Most of the criticisms are like, they they criticize the fact that she used multiple different writings about the griffin over multiple different times and cultures. Like, I think from Herodotus, or no, uh, Aristeus, all the way to um, a alien, it's like covers like a thousand years of time. And so they, they kind of pick at her for that. Like, it's not all the same people. It's not all the same culture. It's not all the same writing. So shit could be different and just through time could have morphed and evolved into its own thing instead of like, you know, like each, each telling and each time that you're citing, oh, uh, Aristeus. And then, you know, 500 years later or whatever it is, you cite uh, Herodotus. They could be very different societies, very different lenses, you know, that these, these men are viewing these things on. And so that could, it could alter what the result of their research ends up being, if that makes sense. So, um, but again, like, like I said, um, from according to our fake history, it doesn't, there's some criticisms, but it really just, a lot of people just kind of end up agreeing in it. I feel like it's kind of the same thing that I've been saying this whole time, but you just step back and you're just like, huh? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like, there's no reason to argue that, that I don't have the exact proof to 100% prove without a shadow of a doubt that that's how it happened, but that certainly makes fucking sense, and I can't really argue against it right now, you know? So maybe someday we'll have some more technology to update our current understanding. I'm sure we will, but, like, maybe it changes what we even think of as a protoceratops. Like, maybe even that's not, like, maybe even our current understanding of the protoceratops still isn't right, you know? Maybe it had more of a bird head <laughs> and actually maybe it looked like more of a, what a griffin actually looks like. Maybe it had feathers around its head and had a big beak and, you know, maybe it looked like a, a bird with a, you know, or a, uh, a lion with a bird head. Like, <laughs> I mean, it could have, we could come out with that like understanding and that would just update what we know now. So if you can kind of imagine that, but. Um, but yeah, I hope you guys really enjoyed this. This was a 
blast. This was a super, super fun episode to uh, research and, and kind of really just go through all the fun stuff. I, I really had fun doing this one, so I really hope you guys like it. Definitely shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. And I was going to originally do this episode as an IFOs and it was going to be a lot shorter and I was going to do like kind of like how I did with the one of the last IFOs where I did like three weather phenomenons so I was going to do three mythic creatures or three ancient creatures that you know we thought we used to think as a as a as a humanity we used to think were real but then we've found out they're not and one of them we found out was so I was going to, it was going to be a lot shorter. I didn't realize there was so much to this. Like I knew there was a lot to giants and I knew there was a little bit to dragons, but there's a lot of different ways you can do an episode on a dragon, but the Griffins, man, I, when I started reading this shit and I heard that, uh, that episode, I was just like, I gotta get, I gotta find everything I can about this and I have no regrets. I'll say that. So I hope you don't either. But uh, again, yeah, shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. We would greatly appreciate five stars if you give us a review. And we hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Icarus Kane, and this is Aliens After Dark. Our email address is aliensafterdark, the number nine, at gmail.com. And keep looking down because there could be fossils. And we'll see you next time. Bye.